that an act qua fulfilling a promise or qua affecting a just distribution of goods or qua promoting the good of others is prima facie right is self-evident. Not in the sense that it is evident from the beginning of our lives or as soon as we attend to the proposition for the first time, but in the sense that when we have reached sufficient mental maturity and have given sufficient attention to the proposition, it is evident without any need of proof or of evidence beyond itself. It is self-evident just as the mathematical axiom or the validity of a form of inference is evident. The moral order expressed in these propositions is just as much part of the fundamental nature of the universe as is the spatial or numerical structure expressed in the axioms of geometry or arithmetic. In both cases, we are dealing with propositions that cannot be proved, but that just as certainly need no proof. W.D. Ross, The Right and the Good. Welcome to Moral Minority. I'm Devin Gray. And I'm Charles Dashings. In our everyday lives, let alone in politics, we are constantly confronted with situations that require an adjudication between what we judge to be advantageous for us and what, all things considered, would be right. In our inherited moral language, confrontations between our practical self-interests and conscientious reflection take the form of prickly questions like, what ought we to do? What is required of me? What would be the right thing to do? When we engage in this other regarding relational thinking, we implicitly invoke some external standard of conduct, which is to guide our action and which transcends our particular desires and inclinations in the moment. In other words, we adopt an ethical stance. Alongside adopting this ethical stance is the belief that our answers to these questions provide an overriding motive for acting or refraining from acting in certain ways, approving and disapproving of certain states of affairs, and illuminates what is ultimately valuable and worthy of promotion, and sometimes what we should at great costs, strive to prevent. The ethical stance seems to require of us a definitive answer to those prickly questions. If it is to be more than an expression of some internalized cultural norms or just a metastasized egoism. According to some philosophers, what the ethical stance appears to require are objective facts, facts about what acts are right and what acts are wrong. Objectivity is a notoriously contentious concept, and there are competing accounts of the conditions under which our descriptive and moral claims turn out true or false. Nevertheless, what is not contested is that our ordinary moral language implicitly invokes external standards when we speak of the right and of the good. What remains for us to discern is not only what our ethical statements mean, but under the assumption that some of these statements are true, what is their peculiar character? How can statements purporting to describe a fact about the world at the same time constrain our action beyond serving as an internal justification of what we contingently desire or as an ad hoc requisition of what we ultimately do? Are there such things as moral facts that we apprehend and commend not because they appeal to our emotions or our prejudices, but because they are genuine instances of knowledge? In order to answer these questions, we are taking a detour into a foreign territory of seemingly strange concepts, outrageous thought experiments, and fine-grained distinctions, the world of analytic meta-ethics. 
What has affectionately or derisively, depending on who you ask, come to be known as the analytic philosophical tradition emerges at the beginning of the 20th century. In reaction to the concomitant delusionment, disillusionment with the speculative system building philosophy that dominated the 19th century and the demonstrable material success and alleged supremacy of the scientific method, philosophers in Europe and the United States felt pressured to make philosophy respectable, namely more scientific. In response to the intellectual and cultural pressure to purge the excesses of speculative philosophy and ground philosophical investigation in the verifiable methods of science, Many philosophers attempted to reproduce the rigor of science by reconceiving philosophy as means of logical and semantic analysis. No longer was it intellectually respectable to call metaphysics the queen of the sciences. In fact, many, and especially a group of philosophers known as the logical positivists, came to believe that much of metaphysical speculation was not only misguided, but meaningless, a product of an inattentiveness to semantics. From this line of thought emerged the idea that our ordinary moral language was plagued with errors, arising from a failure to, to, to disambiguate the meaning of terms, or worse yet, affix a meaning to words signifying concepts with no possible referent. From this perspective, it turned out that a lot of cherished concepts were nonsense. At the same time as the logical positivists were discarding much of the medical, metaphysical systems built over centuries, another group of rigorously minded, but less thoroughly skeptical philosophers counter the positivist deconstruction of ordinary language usage with the suggestion that perhaps there is wisdom or true knowledge contained in our inherited language usage, most especially in our normative vocabulary. These philosophers, contra the positivists, while acknowledging the value and success of the empirical method, suggest that it is not possible for the tools of empiricism to illuminate the arena of moral values. In order to understand value, claims about meaningfulness or what is good, beautiful, right, and true, we have no better guide than our thinking and acting. If we want to know what is of lasting value to us, what we ought to pursue, what is right and wrong, then we must turn to experience and reflection to see whether we can discover any general principles. Today's discussion will concern not what particular actions are right, but the meta question of how we determine what actions are right. What characterizes right action? Is there one feature that makes all acts right? Is this feature something that empirical investigation can identify, or are there seemingly queer moral properties that we ascertain in some other way? Welcome back, Charles, to our second episode of Moral Minority. It's great to be here. Welcome to you as well. We are today uh, seemingly pivoting in a big way from our first episode, which focused on Nietzsche. We are now moving to a rather different tradition of thought, uh, looking at early 20th century, and, and to some extent later 20th century, analytic meta-ethics. Um, and this, I think, might strike some of our listeners as a strange decision, but I think I would justify the choice by saying Nietzsche at the end of the 19th century gives us this incredibly powerful and provocative critique of any attempt to ground moral values in the objective nature of the world. And this is essential to his, his idea of the death of God, that the, the fact that we can no longer believe in the Christian God also is connected with, with this disenchantment of the world, or we also can't believe in traditional moral values either. And obviously this, you know, this is an argument we covered in some detail. But here we're turning to what we both take, I think, take to be a fairly sophisticated case for the opposite uh, that comes a little bit later at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, that is trying to make the case that no, our best account of our ordinary moral judgments and, and the truth that they involve is that they are objective in some fashion, that they're objectively true. 
Um, and this is the moral realist position that we'll examine. And I think when we were discussing the idea for some of these episodes, one of the reasons we wanted to focus on moral realism so early was the kind of shared sense that at least in some of the communities that we're in, um, moral subjectivism seems to be the dominant or at least intuitive position rather than moral realism. And in last episode, we briefly touched on moral subjectivism as the idea that moral statements don't have any particular truth value, but serve rather to express preferences about what I desire or perhaps serve to allow me to influence your behavior in some way. But they can't be true or false. And we're going to get into these distinctions in a more nuanced way in this episode. But I think in, in contrast with this, it's striking that, you know, I was looking at the 2020 Phil Papers survey, which surveys, um, you know, roughly 1,500 or, or so professional philosophers um, on their on their views on a variety of issues in which are included metaethics and moral judgment. And it's, it's quite striking that there's staunch majorities, so 62% of professional academic philosophers favor moral realism in metaethics over anti-realism. 69%, according to this 2020 survey, favor cognitivism in moral judgment over non-cognitivism, um, with in each case a you know alternative, neither or some combination of both being the third answer. So these are quite substantial majorities. Um, and it's striking how much that seems to contrast with both of our perceptions of a kind of um, intuitive idea of metaethics in popular culture these days. So I think in that case, like given given this contrast, let's start out by laying out what this position consists in. What is moral realism uh, in its nuts and bolts? What is it basically trying to argue? Moral realism has two prongs. The view is committed to a, a semantic thesis about the meaning of moral statements or moral claims. and on a deep level, it's committed to an ontological thesis about the actual status of our moral evaluations. The semantic thesis, the moral realist, takes a what is known in the literature as a cognitivist position, namely that moral statements purport to convey or uh, indicate facts about the world, that in addition to our normal, everyday descriptive facts, they're also evaluated facts. So when I say or make the claim more murder is wrong, that has a truth value. It is true in virtue of some fact about the world. That is cognitivism on the semantic level. The second prong is an ontological claim, namely that there are such things like moral concepts that point or indicate real properties in the world, that within the statement, murder is wrong, is contained the property wrongness. So whenever there is an instance of murder, there is a states of affairs that obtains, that is the working definition in the analytical literature for fact, a state of affair that obtains. That means that in the state of affairs in which murder takes place, wrongness obtains. Wrongness is a property within that natural description. So in addition to the natural descriptions of the world, we also have these evaluated descriptions which are true. That's moral cognitivism. Moral realism is the combination of those two prongs. It is a cognitive approach to the meaning of moral statements, that moral statements indeed have a truth value, that they're actually describing facts in the world. They're not doing something else. 
like expressing some desire or some preference or some emotive reactive attitude, but they're actually describing facts in the world. And on a deep ontological level, there are such things as evaluative facts. Let's, let's dwell on the first prong here for a moment. Before getting to the ontological question, let's look at the semantic question of the meaning of moral judgments. Because my first reaction in part is to say, well, of course, it's it's intuitive or, or in some ways obvious that when I say you ought not to commit murder, I'm not I'm not trying, at least consciously, to either just influence your action or express my own desire. I seem to mean something distinct from that. But at the same time, this runs and seems to run into problems already, as you've kind of laid out. It seems the alternative is accepting that there's something like moral facts or qualities that inhere in states of affairs in the world in somewhat the similar way that physical properties do. So I think this seems to be maybe the point of puzzlement, right? That on the one hand, we can pretty easily understand how a non-cognitive non view, maybe it makes sense of what we're really trying to do on an unconscious level with our, with our moral judgments. Maybe in an unconscious level, I'm really just trying to influence your behavior, or I'm really judging what is best for me to be best morally. But on a surface level of what the meaning of the utterance actually, actually seems to be, it seems that there's a stronger case to be made by pressing upon this issue of moral properties and what analogy these are supposed to have with physical properties. So I think it's important here to clear up what non-cognitivism is. And once again, non-cognitivism is a view about moral semantics, about the meaning and function of moral statements in our language. We've already elaborated that cognitivism takes our moral statements to be true in some objective sense that they point to something in the world, value inheres in the fabric of the universe. That's cognitivism. Non-cognitivism, what motivates this, and we spoke a little bit about this in our introduction to what's going on at the, in the 20th century in analytic metaethics, is the idea that the way that we express ourselves, our common sense understanding of moral statements, may might be fundamentally mistaken. That what appear to be descriptive facts, descriptive value facts about the world, are not that at all. What these philosophers are interested in is interrogating our normal or ordinary language usage and seeing what's behind, what is the social function of our moral statements. And some philosophers, known as non-cognitivists, take our moral statements like murder is wrong, not to be expressing or purporting something that is true of the world, namely that there is this property or attribute of wrongness that inheres in any instance of murder, but merely expecting, expressing some subjective reactive attitude, namely like, when I say murder is wrong, I'm not making a claim about some fact, but I'm expressing my disapproval of murder. I'm saying something like, boo, murder. Or I'm doing something further than that. I'm performing the act of commending to others that they should share my attitude towards murder, namely disapproval. So non-cognitivism turns on what is the correct analysis, the logical, semantical analysis of the function of moral statements in our language. Yeah, so it seems to me that the cognitivist position is a little easier to grant than the second part, 
the part that seems to involve certain ontological commitments. And we talked, for example, in the last episode, I think the passage from Dawn that we started with is actually quite a good example of these yes. debates where Nietzsche is in fact distinguishing between these two sorts of positions. He's saying he denies morality, he denies alchemy, not that there aren't plenty of alchemists who believe that they were really right. doing something called alchemy, but that Absolutely. they were actually actually accomplishing anything thereby. So, right? so Nietzsche and this Apache's in this passage appears to be taking a cognitive position. He says, yes, our ordinary moral statements do appear to be describing facts in the world. That seems to be what they're doing. But on a deeper level, on an ontological level, is there really a basis? Can we make sense of this idea that there are such things as value facts that inhere in the world, that there's a property of rightness or wrongness or goodness or badness? And Nietzsche's answer although it doesn't map exactly onto this cartography of moral realism, anti-realism, cognitism, anti-cognitism, appears to be that no, that we are fundamentally mistaken about this ontological reality. Language has deceived us. And there is an affinity that Nietzsche shares with the non-cognitivists that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century in the analytic tradition. Yeah, and that that's it's quite interesting because there it seems like you can make the case that they're both responding to a similar sort of collapse of traditional values in one sense because we're trying to reformulate this and see whether we can reformulate this on the terrain of a language of validity provided by modern science and forms of expression such as computational logic that you know to begin to develop at the end of the 19th century, right? Um, but I think the most it, the when when I hear this, the most natural response to me is to say maybe the realist position is correct that we do have in 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 the first prong that these statements we make about morality do have truth values; they can be true or false. But what if it makes more sense to imagine them as true relative to a certain, say, human reference frame, whether this is Kant's idea of a kind of pure moral will that we construct out of our reason. This seems to help resolve the problem by giving us a rigorous language to talk about moral validity without necessarily requiring appeal to something like objective moral properties. So I'm wondering what this, how the moral realist would situate, the moral realist position is situated relative to this along the second prong of the, what is kind of the ontological status of these moral properties? So I think in order to understand what's going on here, we're gonna to have to back up and contextualize both the industrial revolution that Nietzsche is witnessing, the, the birth of modern science, which has also come to fruition in the 20th century. So the same conditions, social material conditions that are motivating Nietzsche's turn in his critique of morality are also motivating early 20th century uh, analytic metaethicists. At the time, the dominant idea about not only the meaning and function of our moral statements, but the deep structure of morality is that it has to have some natural basis. Naturalism is the default position, that our morality has to be grounded in something very familiar to us, natural facts, perhaps social right. facts. And I think this is an essential point for us to pause to just emphasize how crucial this is, that the entire this entire discourse that's going to arise in 20th century analytic moral philosophy around intuitionism and the possibility of non-natural moral properties seems to depend upon a certain horizon of interpretation and philosophy that has been already established where natural science sets the standard of several things. It sets the standard of what we consider an object to be in the sense of physical, natural, 
objects as described by, by science, but also what would constitute a rigorous methodology for philosophy in the sense that science has perhaps provided the gold standard of what we consider to be a rigorous method. Philosophy should try to emulate this. And I think it's really important to emphasize that this background and an effort to make philosophy analogous to science in this way See, really seems to structure the entire concept of objective moral properties that's, that's going to come up in this tradition. Absolutely. And the particular version of moral realism, which we will be examining shortly, the, the Rossian intuitionist tradition, really begins with the publication of a book called Principica Ethica, or The Principles of Ethics, by G.E. Moore. This really is the foundation of what is the intuitionist tradition. And Moore is responding to the dominance of the, natu the naturalistic assumptions supposedly undergirding our, our moral codes. And in this work, Moore is at pains to point out the fallacy of this. And he does this by a logical analysis of the concept of goodness. He says there's something strange about the way we use goodness. Good seems to be a description with no discernible dictionary definition. Of course, we could open up the dictionary and we could find a definition, but it won't seem to encapsulate all the various ways we use the good. We can talk about good things for us. We can talk about an instrumental sense of goodness, but we also, more importantly, more foundationally, talk about the good. And more thinks the good is what he calls an unanalyzable, simple concept. It's something that we can always ask another question about. So any potential definition, dictionary definition of good will always raise a further question. So the hedonist says that the good is synonymous or coextensive with pleasure. By good, I mean pleasure. But Moore says, when anyone, any, when anyone asks you, like, the good is the pleasant, you can always ask the further question, well, is the pleasant good? And you can do this with any purported definition of good, and you seem to never really arrive, arrive at any necessary sufficient conditions that encapsulate what the good is. Right, right. And this is fairly intuitive. So, you know, this coming weekend for the Super Bowl, I'm probably going to consume an inordinate number of spicy chicken wings because I think it's pleasant. And then a couple hours later, I'm probably going to be asking myself the question of, was this really good? And it seems that I can play this game with more or less any attempt to cash out uh, the good in terms of any any other word, any other concept beside itself. And this is Moore's famous open questions argument, right? Or open question argument. That That's exactly right. So what's at work here are, are two things. It's a response to the dominance of naturalism, the assumption that if moral properties or moral concepts are to have meaning, they have to be reducible to some natural property, something we can physically point to in the world. And it's in part motivated by a response to the dominant moral theory at the time, which is utilitarianism. And Moore actually is going to offer a revision of the traditional utilitarian theory. The traditional utilitarian theory as articulated by Bentham and Mill in the 19th century basically reduces the good to pleasure, particularly the production of pleasure. That what is right, what one ought to do, 
what makes right acts right, which is the question that Ross will be concerned with, as you'll see, is its ability to produce the best outcomes, namely produce the most pleasure or the most happiness. It gets cashed out in some way like that. What Moore is responding to in both his open question argument and saying that the good is essentially an unanalyzable simple concept is that this definition of good synonymous with pleasure will not do. So he reformulates the utilitarian framework to say, yes, I agree that the utilitarians had essential insight that the right is synonymous with the best outcomes, but what it's really synonymous with is the production, the best, the most amount of goodness, right? And beyond that, we can say no more. Yeah, but there still seems to be a couple problems that even this ideal utilitarian account that you get in more run, runs into. And I think this might be a good way to transition into the first part of Ross, which is going to focus on what makes right actions right and right in the sense of duty. It's very closely connected with the concept of duty. Um, and the, the cases that seem to come up and, and, and increasingly become to be an, come to be an embarrassment for the utilitarian literature of this period uh, to make sense of are, are I, I think, two stand out. One is the concept of promising. And this is something that's going to be central to Ross's account and, and the right and the good, and particularly his account of the prima facie duty, which is one of his central concepts. And it seems that with promises, if I make a promise to you to, to take Ross's example to return a book to you, I incur a duty to return that book simply through the act of promising. And our intuition seems to be that if we imagine a scenario where in a utilitarian calculus, returning the book to you and fulfilling my promise would produce exactly 1000 units of good, but breaking the promise and say, giving the book to somebody else would produce exactly 1001 units of good. The utilitarian theory seems to say, we should break the promise. We should go with the act that will produce the most units of good. Our intuition, I think, as Ross wants to cash it out at least, is to say, well, no, we have this idea that just insofar as we make a promise, this incurs a kind of obligation in the very act itself, deontologically. The second case I think that's related would be uh, the concept of punishing innocence. And we'll get to talk about this later as well when we get to Kantian theories, because I think this is an example that will come up, particularly in Kantian accounts. A utilitarian might also come to embarrassment when asked, well, wouldn't it be right to scapegoat somebody, for example, to punish an innocent person because it might produce external forms of goods that calms the public down and prevents further violence. But this still seems to contradict some basic sense of duty that is inherent in the concept of punishment, namely that it has to be directed against people who are guilty in some fashion, that it can't be directed against the innocent. So Ross, it seems, has a way of making sense of these obligations that the utilitarian does not. So let's try to talk about, I think, in your mind then, what how Ross defines the concept of the right and how he kind of leads into this concept of prima facie duty that seems to be better equipped to solve these problems than the utilitarian account. Before we get into Ross's specific critique with utilitarianism and the extent to which it's insufficient to capture our, our moral lives. I think it's important to show the transition from Moore and Ross, how Ross is the successor to Moore. What Ross takes from Moore is not only his suspicion towards the naturalistic fallacy that, our, that moral properties can be reduced to natural properties, but also he, he takes from Ross this refinement of utilitarianism. 
Ross agrees that the previous utilitarian theor theories are insufficient, but he also thinks Moore's utilitarianism will not do. And it won't do precisely because it seems that we have obligations to do more than just produce the best outcomes. That something like consequentialism will not capture the complexity or plurality of our actual duties. And you've already brought up the two cases that that Ross uses really to highlight this, the case of promise keeping and the case of whether it would be just under the utilitarian theory, which is a monistic, a single theory of what makes right actions right, namely that right actions are right in virtue of their consequences, that they produce the most good, according to Moore. Ross says that what makes right acts right is not reducible to the consequences. Yes, in many cases, we do care about the consequences of our actions. That is a factor in our moral deliberations. But as we see in the case of promise keeping, we don't make promises typically with the consequences in mind. In fact, we, we can't even think about that when we make a promise. We seem to be obligated to keep our promises solely in virtue of the act of making a promise. So here's an instance of a commonplace obligatory thing we do in our life, which is make promises that doesn't seem to reduce the utilitarian theory. Likewise, it seems like the utilitarian theory comes to grief when we on the question of punishment. If it really is the case that what makes right acts right is the production of the greatest good or the best consequences for, for everyone, all things considered, then there may arise cases where it's justified to punish the innocent. If punishing the innocent produces the best consequences or results in a, a greater good than that would be produced by any available alternatives, then utilitarianism says you have to punish the innocent. But that goes against this intuitive sense that we have that it is wrong on its face to punish the innocent. So this is really what's going on in the legacy of Moore to Ross, is he's showing not only are moral properties, if they exist, are something that cannot be reduced to some natural property, he thinks Moore has successfully demonstrated this, but that our moral theory will not fit this really reductionary monistic view where all right actions are just about the consequences. Because there are clear cases where other obligations seem to be involved that don't take into account the best, if we can even know this. Right. And so what Ross will give us is an account with multiple different prima facie duties, right. all of which, any of which, or any combination of which might be instantiated present in a given act, so, uh, so which raises questions of how we then weigh these prima facie duties when there are multiple. I mean, in fact, right. Ross is going so far, going to go so far as to tell us that every single act will be to some extent yeah. prima facie right and to some extent prima facie wrong. So we, we, we got to clarify something here. This term prima facie. Now, typically when we use the term prima facie in other philosophical contexts, it means something like on its face, right? But for Ross is using it in a very technical way in a way that he's at pains to specify and bring out. When Ross talks about our prima facie duties and obligations, he's not saying that these are our actual or absolute duties, that we have to do these every single time. What he's saying is that things like promise keeping, 
things like gratitude, things like repairing past wrongs, things like beneficent action. These are things that are conditionally our duty. They're prima facie in the sense that they are of the character of duty, that they would be our actual duty, what we are obligated to do, morally obligated to do, barring them being weighed against other possible duties. So for Ross's moral theory, we have a plurality of duties. We don't just have this one supreme monistic principle of producing the most good possible that the utilitarians say. We actually have discoverable general principles of duties, which are prima facie right, meaning that they are of the character of tending to be our duty and would be our actual duty, barring some other aspect of our moral circumstances that defeats them, that outweighs them. So in any particular moral situation, Ross argue, argues that there will be aspects of the situations that instantiate conditional or prima facie duties. If we look at it from one perspective, we have an obligation to act. But from a different perspective, if we act on that particular prima facie duty, we are acting in a way that would be wrong. So our moral lives are this complex brew of things that are both right and wrong. And the best thing we can hope to do is try by experience, by sufficient reflection, act on that prima facie duty, which is most incumbent upon us in the situation. So we don't have perfect, absolute knowledge of what we should do. We just have these general principles of prima facie duty that we weigh against each other and any circumstances in our life will likely involve many of them competing with each other and we just have to try our best. We have to aim at doing the right thing. But we can never be sure. Yeah. We, we only have probabilistic knowledge. So it seems to me that the description you've given helps if we think about kind of mapping Ross onto what I think many people see as the most familiar kind of main ethical ethical theories rather than meta-ethical theories. Yes. Um, and this helps distinguish Ross from another popular account, which would be Kant's in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. And I think he's particularly targeting Kant at points of his book here, where for Kant, of course, breaking a promise or telling a lie is wrong a priori in the sense that it contradicts some, some test of universalizability. I can't universalize this as my will inherently to the act. But it's the a problem. Yeah, go ahead. It's a perfect obligation for Kant. That's a precisely. Term. It's a perfect obligation, rather than the conditional obligations that he's trying to describe describe here, which which are prima facie but conditional. So, the famously, of course, Kant's account is going to have trouble making sense of situations where you know uh, I'm harboring people who are being sought in my house, who are being sought by the Nazi Gestapo. They come to my door. They demand, "Are you hiding any Jews?" I, of course, feel morally obligated to lie and say, of course, I'm not hiding anybody. But it seems that Kant's moral theory doesn't want to, doesn't allow for us to make sense of the distinction. Whereas Ross, one attractive feature of Ross's theory is because he's admitting that this is always going to be a question of judgment, that there's always going to be multiple prima facie duties uh, that could adhere in a given act. It forces us into this position of weighing duties in a way that a more parsimonious moral theory might not, and that kind of gets at my the, what what I take him to be more similar to, which is the more Aristotelian virtue ethicist approach. Now he's not a virtue ethicist in the Aristotle sense, but 
importantly Aristotelian because of how central phronesis judgment is or practical wisdom for Aristotle. And you even, you know, put put it as, you know, aiming at the right target in some sense, which is very similar to Aristotle's idea of the mean and aiming at the mean. Um, and in that, I think it, it gets me to a question that it keeps coming up when I'm, you know, going through this section. And I want to I want to look at a passage that comes up in a footnote. It's on page 20, at least, of the copy that I've been working from that I thought was really fascinating. And it gets it, I think, this something very similar to Aristotle with regards to a kind of reliance on everyday opinions and ordinary language. And so Ross says in this footnote, I should make it plain at this stage that I am assuming the correctness of some of our main convictions as to prima facie duties, or more strictly, in claiming that we know them to be true. To me, it seems self-evident as anything could be that to make a promise, for instance, is to create a moral claim on us and someone else. Many readers will perhaps say that they do not know this to be true. If so, I certainly cannot prove it to them. I can only ask them to reflect again in the hope that they will ultimately agree that they also know it to be true. The main moral convictions of the plain man seem to me to be not opinions, which it is for, for philosophy to prove or disprove, but knowledge from the start. And this this is quite a strong claim, uh, especially Indeed. in light of, you know, what we've talked about with Nietzsche, what we've, what I think a lot of people in our audience might be coming at, at this with a familiarity with, for example, the philosophy after the linguistic turn and the continental tradition in the 20th century. Ross has this extremely robust faith that because our ordinary language purports to describe, or we can make our best sense of our ordinary language by talking about this plurality of prima facie duties, that this is true knowledge, that there is kind of no further relevant question to be asked once we have kind of gotten down to our best description of what our moral language is. And I, that strikes me as a significant but controversial position. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, it struck me as a, a very contentious position when I first read it. But I think there are two things motivating this for Ross. Uh, one is kind of bucking a trend. Uh, that he is responding to at the beginning of the 20th century and coming out of the Morian tradition. Uh, there is this drive in moral philosophy, traditionally, particularly coming out of the, the haze of speculative uh, systemic philosophy in the 19th century, uh, that our moral theories uh, don't need to fit the everyday intuitions or facts. In fact, it's a virtue if it's the opposite, that our theories should should change the way we think about our our, our common sense uh, views of morality. Ross reverses this. He says that it's actually a virtue of his theory, not only that it, it doesn't try to reduce uh, all of our moral obligations to one single characteristic, uh, but that it it fits, it's in line with what he calls the plain man's intuitions, uh, with, with our everyday experience, with the complexity of our moral lives. That is it a virtue of his theory that his theories fit the facts and he doesn't try to make the facts fit the theory. Right, but the facts, this question of the facts though, and I think it's it's important to address this because even if it takes us a little bit off, off of Ross specifically, but who is the plain man in this context? Because of course it's, it's from the context of contemporary philosophy, yeah. it'd be quite reasonable, I think, and especially with two of us as white dudes sitting here discussing this dead white guy to say, well, whose intuitions are these, right? We now have have digested at this point, I hope, standpoint epistemology. We've, we've kind yeah. of integrated the insight that 
our epistemological view can be importantly dependent upon the perspective of somebody's identity when it comes to whether they come from a privileged or underprivileged background and along various different different dimensions. So what would you say, I think, I guess is my question to the critic who says, well, sure, this, this is Ross's perception of the plain man's moral intuitions, but maybe this is just the perception of a white, fairly affluent liberal of a particular period of time. Um, and what claim might does Ross have the, for that to generalize rather than being a product of his own, own peculiarity? That is an ex excellent and difficult question. The way I would answer it is that when Ross speaks of the plain man, he's not speaking of a particular man or a particular person. He's speaking of something like a transhistorical figure. He's speaking of the collective body of moral knowledge of our most mature and most reflective thinkers. He claims that his uh, derivation of what he calls the general principles of duty, our prime evasion of duties, are not only based on his own experience and re reflection on particular instances, uh, but are what anyone who has spent sufficient time reflecting and has experienced these instances, these obligations, would come to believe. And he thinks he can claim that this is self-evident. Now, what he's not saying is that he has absolute infallible knowledge of what we should do in every particular circumstances. What he's saying is that he has discovered general principles in line with the general moral prescriptions within his perhaps limited to the Western tradition, but I think the example of promise keeping is probably transcultural. Someone could gladly correct me on that. But he seems to think that he has identified a imperfect, partial list subject to revision of general principles of duty uh, that are not, they are self-evident, not in the sense that we know them from the beginning of our lives, but that anyone in principle will discover their validity simply by living and encountering different moral situations. Yeah, well, I think one, I, I guess to, if I'm going to respond further to to my own concern, <laughs> my own, the own, my own objection yeah. that I'm raising, it does seem that in contrast with, say, uh, Moore, who is promoting a certain ideal utilitarian perspective as obviously the intuitive moral standpoint. It does seem that Ross's account allows for a great deal more flexibility because of its essential pluralism. Right. So in some sense, because there are multiple prima facie duties, we can uh, quite easily accommodate how different cultures might have very different ways of weighing these Absolutely. different duties and judgment, even Absolutely. if these core, even if, as you say, we might be able to isolate certain practices like promise keeping, which I think it's quite reasonable to say promise keeping is a universal yeah. a, a human practice with universal features that are shared very widely cross-culturally. But we can also, I think one of interesting features is that Ross gives us an ability to make sense of how the different ways of weighing these duties can vary cross-culturally, which right. raises further concerns because the concern might be that if Ross is giving us our more ordinary moral intuitions, but leaving a whole lot importantly to judgment, yep. what is he really telling us when it comes to really working out in applied ethics, say, 
some of these really sticky moral issues. What can Ross's pluralistic count? You know, this is one of the one of the virtues one might say of their utilitarian account. It gives us a clear, hard and fast rule by which we can make a decision, morally speaking. We can calculate it. And certainly this is something that continues to appeal to people in Silicon Valley and the so-called effective altruist movement today, yeah. I think for that very reason, it seems amenable to scientific analysis. Whereas Ross's perspective seems more challenging, but I think much more realistic and much more, and I think this is what, what seems most compelling about it. it, does seem to capture the richness and lack of clear unity of our ordinary moral intuitions and, and, and grammar, the kind of grammar of our moral expressions. And most importantly, from the standpoint of general moral theory, is it gives us a way to make sense of the fact of moral disagreement. On the utilitarian theory, we can't really understand cross-cultural moral disagreement. If there is just one monistic principle, namely we should maximize the good, it doesn't, it doesn't explain, it doesn't have any way of understanding the fact that we do disagree, that we do feel the sense of compunction when we make tough de moral decisions. Ross gives us a way of understanding the complexity, the difficulty, the pain of, of moral decision by showing that there is a plurality of potential obligations involved in any moral situation, that the best we can do is just try, use our judgment, use our experience, and strive to do the right thing, not knowing if it is the right thing, but to the best of our ability, weigh these conflicting obligations we have both to ourselves and others. And I think that brings up a, another important virtue of his account is that a lot of utilitarian accounts are premised upon this idea that the correct moral theory uh, must be selfless, right? Uh, but Ross, because he is this Aristotelian philosopher, he is a great translator of Aristotle. His translations are still widely read today. He sees that we not only have duties to others, but we have duties to ourselves. We have a, a duty of, of beneficence to ourselves. We even have a duty of, to a certain extent, he has reservations, but but of of producing our pleasure or bringing more pleasure into our life. We have a duty of self-improvement. And that's another virtue of Ross's account that you won't find necessarily in Kantianism, and you certainly won't find in a very austere utilitarianism, that it brings back this notion that we have not only duties to others, that morality is not other, not only other regarding, but it's self-regarding. Yeah, if I, I think that is definitely, a, and, and to, kind of relates to what we talked about last week with, with Nietzsche, uh, without a doubt, in terms of Nietzsche's diagnosis of selfless morality. But I think if I were to play devil's advocate here with respect to the Aristotelian component, the objection to presenting the accommodation of moral disagreement as a strength would be that perhaps it permits relativism on the level of moral judgment. And to the extent that Ross's account does mirror Aristotle's, and I think I'm, I'm anticipating a little bit because we're going to talk about this top this theme in great detail in our next episode, which will focus on Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. But Aristotle, it seems, has a kind of ethical and metaphysical vocabulary and, and background and worldview that we no longer share to a certain to to a large extent. Um, or at least this can be argued. There are plenty of ways to make sense of Aristotle in, in the modern sense. But let's say. 
uh, we struggle with concepts of teleology in nature and the idea that the human being has a single telos or a single ultimate good. Um, and obviously Aristotle is also somebody who's going to accommodate a plurality of goods because somebody who wants to say that, te that the telos is ingrained in nature in some, in some fashion. And this is a conclusion that we're going to resist as moderns. And I think it's worth raising the question of how much this does this vocabulary continue to make sense without a strong background of tradition and community that gives us a rich context with which to, to judge morally. So for example, we want to know uh, what it means to act courageously. If I'm ancient Greek, and if I read Aristotle saying, well, acting courageously means acting in the right way under the right circumstances as a courageous man would act. For us, that seems probably empty. For the Greeks, I can quite easily take the example of Achilles as a widely agreed upon figure and exemplar in my culture that is a reference point for my judgment. And I think one issue that I keep coming back to with Ross is how, what the consequences are of placing so much weight upon judgment without that kind of inherited background that you get in a thinker like Aristotle. And I don't, we don't need to get into this too much because we're going to talk about it in detail, but it's something that I, you know, in the next episode, it's something that I keep thinking. The risk, of course, would be that maybe we can't decide. Maybe we don't have the background or the rules of moral salience uh, to take a different term, uh, to sort out which prima facie duty is relevant here. So what tools does Ross give to resolve a problem, the problem of relativism as it might arise in adjudicating between multiple prima facie duties? Well, first of all, I would, I would like to emphasize that his derivation of the list is admittedly, and he stresses this several times, finite, imperfect subject to revision subject to revision importantly yeah <laughs> he doesn't claim that he has identified all of our prima facie duties or that the list couldn't be condensed or expanded he just thinks he's given a pretty good go at it and he would say that we should be able to transfer his list imperfect as it is as an interpretive framework for understanding moral disagreement across time. So in order to understand the Greek conception of courage or the value placed on it, we should be able to reduce it to a difference in interpretive stress on what for a Greek would have been their prima facie overriding duty, their duty per se, their actual duty. And Ross always says that his list of prima facie duties are just general characteristics of things that tend to be our duty and that the actual decision of what we act on is up to us and we have no certainty we have no guarantee we at best have probabilistic knowledge that we're we're aiming at getting it right so i think ross's response to relativism is that try out these try out this list i provided for you see if it makes sense see if you can encapsulate the diversity of your moral phenomenon under these principles, see if they're not involved in a variety of situations. He thinks that by doing this, by experiencing particular instances of prom promise keeping, of gratitude, of reparation, of justice, we will find that these general principles are self-evident in the sense that they become indubitable upon reflection and proper experience. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to, 
pivot a little bit then, having clarified. And I think this is, in some sense, we've been clarifying the first prong of the moral realist argument to, to a greater extent here. And I want to pivot a little bit more to the second prong, which I think has come up more classically in accounts of the good, mm. uh, an intrinsic good, yes. uh, that Ross will discuss in the second half of his book. Yes. Um, and Ross has, because one, one of the obvious arguments, I think, as we've already discussed, against the objective account of the good, uh, or of any kind of morality, is that, all right, grant that moral utterances can have truth values in the sense that we ordinarily mean them. If we, if we further grant that there is something like objective moral values, doesn't this have really weird implications for us, for our ontology? So you think about online rightists talking about how human rights don't exist, and we can kind of intuitively understand what they mean by this. And yeah. it's a human creation, let's say. Yeah. So one way of responding to this is to say, well, we can be a realist or we can be a cognitivist in our account of the meaning of moral utterances, but they're nonetheless somehow dependent upon ourselves as right. subjects, as well, upon the and desires that we have, our structures of reason, et cetera. They're not objective properties of the world. But Ross has some very powerful arguments against this relation-dependent view of the good uh, that come out in the second half of the, the half of the book. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those arguments are. Well, Ross seems to think that it is indispensable for his count to kind of revive an ancient conception of value, namely intrinsic value. And this he inherits from Moore. Moore thinks that part of the reason that the good is a simple unanalyzable concept is because it's intrinsically valuable. Now, what the heck is intrinsic value? Well, by point of contrast with a more commonplace form of value we're all familiar with, Intrinsic value is something that is not dependent upon its value. Uh, it's not dependent on anyone approving, thinking about it, commending it. It's not, it's not depend, the value is not dependent on anyone's having some kind of psychological state at the same time in which the value allegedly takes place. So it is the opposite of instrumental value. Instrumental value is something that is valuable because it's valuable for me or for us or for my community. Moore defines intrinsic value famously kind of mystically as something that anyone, perhaps we could say an ideal observer, would value alone. Imagine a universe where nothing else exists except for this one thing, or perhaps just this one thing in my consciousness of it. But for, for, more and for Ross, my consciousness is not the value of the thing is not dependent upon my consciousness, but my consciousness of it is also something intrinsically value, like the experience of beauty. Imagine a world in which, imagine a beautiful world, right, with no inhabitants. Aren't we bound to say, not only in virtue of the way we use language, where the way we talk about the beautiful and the good, that a world that is beautiful is better than a world that is ugly? Right, he calls this his isolation text test of intrinsic value. So intrinsic value is something like, in isolation, imagine a universe vacuumed up of any anything else, just containing this one thing. Would it's would we still say it is valuable? It is good. Moore thinks yes, and Ross is part of this tradition of intrinsic value that, in order to make sense of 
in order for value to get off the ground, in order for there there things that are instrumentally good for us, we have to presuppose, we have to posit something that is an end in itself. That is intrinsically valuable, that is valuable apart from any consideration, apart from anyone's interest in it. Yeah, and I'm interested in trying to figure out how we can make sense of this, because on the one hand, I am immensely sympathetic to this idea that we have to have certain values that are ends in themselves, that there have to be certain things that are intrinsically valuable rather than valuable only for instrumental reasons, only contingent to certain desires or preferences I might have. Right. Um, on the other hand, I seem to I struggle immensely with this isolation argument. <laughs> and I think and I imagine it's, of course, because I'm a good Nietzschean who thinks yeah. that in order to live my life, I have to live it. Right. infinite times in exactly the same detail because everything's so closely interconnected. The idea of kind of ripping myself out of this universe into imagining another universe in which there is beauty, but no subject to perceive the beauty. Yeah. This is difficult. I struggle with this. And, right. and this gets at, I think, the tensions between how far does our language of good really depend upon, even if it purports to be objective, really do does depend right. upon the presence of at least a potential subject to experience the good, have the good, etc. And and I'm, I'm trying to kind of draw out what Ross's response to these to these worries is going to be. I think Ross's thing, Ross's, Ross believes that more through demonstrating to his satisfaction, at least, the unanalyzability of the of the concept of good as something that no diction, di dictionary definition or proposed definition will ever capture that it's this utterly simple concept that we do we use to point and refer to things but it doesn't seem to refer to any natural property demonstrates the necessity of positing intrinsic value that the good has to point to something that is valued apart from anyone valuing. It is not a relational property. It is an attributive property. It's something that adheres to reality itself. This is coheres with our, our usage, and this coheres with our deepest convictions about what is meaningful in life, that there has to be something beyond just our limited perspective and interest. Now, this it seems th that there's one conviction, at least, that it doesn't cohere with. And I mean, let's let's try to address this in some detail here. Sure. This would be JL Mackey's queerness argument, oh, as yeah. he calls it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the classical arguments against moral realism. And what's interesting about Mackey's position is Mackey is what's called an error theorist. And what this means is that Mackey accepts the cognitivist description of moral right. utterances. He accepts that they do purport to be about objectively true states of affairs or accepts, objective states of affairs. He accepts right? the semantic prong of moral Exactly. He so accepts the semantic prong. What he denies is that this actually corresponds to anything in reality. And part of the reason for denying this is that, well, we know very well what a physical property like the hardness or color or extension of an object is. But what are these moral qualities? We, we're talking about them like they're objects, but they seem totally unlike anything like we encounter in the world that we ordinarily talk about as objects. So how do we redeem, because this is, I think, one of the biggest points, and, and I think even if we, even if a lot of philosophers don't feel like the queerness argument really holds up, and I, ten, I tend to agree, um, even though I have 
different leanings. I think we we're, we have somewhat different leanings than what our meta ethics would be in this respect. I do think that there is a deep puzzle here about, isn't it better to say, well, yes, we talk about this as if these are objective properties, but what we really are, are discussing are some kind of relationships with the subject. This would be a solution along the lines of, for example, Kant's third critique in his analysis of aesthetic judgments of beauty. And this is also something that Ross too, in his analysis of beauty, beauty is a little bit different for him than goodness. Beauty is a bit more subject dependent than goodness. Um, so I guess I'm trying to puzzle out what implications, because I think Mackie's strongest point when he frames this argument is that just kind of the basic idea of like, look, if there are objective moral properties, doesn't this have really bizarre implications for our ontology? Like, isn't that really weird for somebody who accepts like a natural science picture, broadly physicalist picture of what reality is at bottom? And it's not necessarily solved by saying, well, there are subjects, right? There are consciousnesses, because importantly, he's accepting the semantic problem. He's accepting that we can't ex say that these values are subject dependent. We can't get out of it that way. They're objective but they're not physical properties, they're not natural properties. How do we make sense of that? So Mackey's objection, what is so queer about if there were something like moral facts, he has specifically in mind the Mori and Rossian line that moral facts are non-natural properties. And Mackey seems to think that there is nothing like this else in our ontologies. There's no, if moral properties are real, if there are, are, are facts of the non-natural kind. They're unlike anything else in the universe we've encountered. The more Morian Rossian line is the counter. It's like, well, actually, we actually we come to know these properties, these attributes of goodness, of rightness, in a similar way in which we come to know mathematical or logic logical axioms. I mean, Ross uses the most simple example imaginable. He says, we come to know that two plus two is four by examining two sticks and then examining two sticks and putting them together and seeing that they make four. So he seems to think that knowledge of moral truths or moral properties are not that queer in that they're the same. We come to know them in uh, this kind of maps, I think maps very well onto uh Kant's distinction, but the synthetic analytic a priori, a posteriori, we have synthetic a priori knowledge of moral facts in the Rossian view. So we come to understand uh, the wrongness of murder uh, in the same way we come to understand that two objects plus two objects equal four. We come to understand it by examining the particular, that the universal in this Aristotelian fashion is instantiated in the particular. And there seems to be this logical relationship or analogy between mathematical properties and moral properties, at least for Ross and Moore. So if those aren't strange, moral properties aren't strange. Right, right. If, we, if we're committed to the view that mathematical properties and the self-evidence that they entail and the se intuitive self-evidence we see when we can follow a proof. Yes. Uh, that if, if we are prepared to accept that, not just as certain, but in fact, as the condition for any science that we're, that we're going to do, exactly then right. why aren't we prepared to accept uh, you know, that, that, that our language of goodness and our moral judgments are of the same basic sort. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, part of the worry would be to get back to the moral disagreement point here. If the self-evidence seems to cut against the reality of moral disagreement. We've already, of course, discussed this and how uh, different Ross's account 
already opens up space for divergences and how different cultures or different moral systems will weigh different duties. Um, but I mean, that that is, I think the, I think the self-evidence point is one that I, that I do, I admit I also struggle with because you can, I mean, there are ways of kind of deflating the consequences of, well, why then if it's self-evident does, uh, do we not follow our moral Follow, follow the moral law or our duties in the way that we should so right often. right well um, and in what and this is you know going to importantly depart from plato in this respect where yes. knowledge knowledge of the more of what is our duty or knowledge of what is virtuous is going to simultaneously be motivated exactly. and 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 mackie and mackie uh, yeah. mackie imputes this direct platonic line to ross and more and i think that's what's wrong with his argument is for more it is not the case that knowledge of our general principles of duty are intrinsically motivated. It's not the case for Moore or Ross, as it was for Plato, that simply by having this apprehension of the good or the right, we are immediate, we immediately act on it. It is possible that we can apprehend the good and not act on it. In fact, for for Ross. An act is right in virtue of it being that kind of act. The motive is not important. What makes actions right is the act is is the act the right action performed or not. The motive is secondary. He has this distinction which may may seem foreign or unusual between the right, the morally good, and the intrinsically good. For Ross, the right just refers to acts. The morally good is acts done from the right motive, which much like Kant is acts done from these general principles of duty, not overriding duty, not perfect obligations like it for Kant, but these prima facie conditional duties. So I think Ross has a way of bifurcating this platonic notion that the apprehension, or as soon as we become aware of right acts, that we are immediately inclined to act on them or we act on them right away. Yeah, it's, I think the, the, you know, this is what, what I think is sets up really well for what we're going to discuss when we move to the Neo-Aristotelians, because I think the, what I feel is the major gap here is the kind of punt to reflection, uh, the kind of punt to what we're going to, what conclusions we'd come to upon considered reflection. On the one hand, I see something appealing here. There's something in this that's similar to Rawls's concept of reflective equilibrium that he introduces in Theory of Justice, where our moral best and most considered moral judgments are always going to be some kind of balance between our received moral wisdom from our history and our, our experiences and our philosophical reflections, and that there's always going to be an effort to try to come to a balance between the two of this, these. And I, I see this as very similar to what Ross is getting at as well. But it does leave open the question of what standards guide judgment. And I think Ross is absolutely correct, and, and we talked about this in the last episode, to talk about a, a, a gap, significant gap between our knowledge of moral principles, our knowledge of what our prima facie duties are, and our knowledge of what is actually the right thing to do in any given instance. And right. You, this is something that I think can be uncomfortable for people to realize. It's actually a more uncomfortable position than I think most people might 
think upon immediate reflection, which is that just the fact that you accept certain, recognize certain sorts of prima facie duties, consider yourself a moral person in that respect, doesn't mean that you have the capacity to judge in particular circumstances. Right. Maybe you, maybe you're, you're perfectly moral in the sense that you would love to abide by these prima facie duties in as much as you can. You'd love to res respect them and recognize them, but your capacity to judge is so colossally bad that you're always going wrong. You're always weighing these duties in the wrong way. You're always, you're always, you know, doing the make, making the immoral choice right. regardless. And I think that's, that's something we're going to return to a lot because I think that it gets at the question of kind of theory and praxis, theory and practice, and how much we can expect from our moral theory. And there's something that's interesting about Ross where it's simultaneously really powerful and robust on the one hand, and that it's right. giving us an objective grounding for our moral judgments, of our moral values on the other, yeah. but simultaneously very weak and kind of deflationist on the other hand, in that there's a great deal of skepticism about how much this actually informs our ability to judge in concrete cases. Right. I, I think... I think Ross, I think that is a worry for Ross, and it may be one that ultimately makes his theory unacceptable. But I think for the purposes of what we're examining here today, the virtues of Ross are that he does admit into his moral theory a plurality of duties that seems to capture the complexity of our, our moral lives, particularly in the obligations we have for self, for ourselves and for others, which rival accounts do not capture. And it seems to do so in a way that is led by reflection on our own experience. And I think there's good reason to think that this reflection on our own experience doesn't only apply to you and I in the Western world as white males, but does have some claim to universalizability. And that is important for any moral theory. But I also think that Ross gives us a way but and he does give us some cases to contemplate, particularly in the case of promise keeping, of a way of making sense of how we practically adjudicate genuine cases of moral conflict. Uh, there's the case of, so say I, I promise to meet you, Devin. I said, okay, we're going to meet tonight. We're going to record at 7 p.m. Uh, we're go I'm going to head over to your place. I'll be there at 7 but it just Charles so happens saying this because of all the times that I canceled <laughs> recording this episode and had to postpone. Just you know, so so our listeners are aware. Go on, Charles. So this this is actually applying these general principles. This is a way of illustrating how, in any particular moral situation, many of these principles will be involved, both that are prima facie right and prima facie wrong. So I have promised you, Devin. I said, I, hey, Devin, I'm going to be there at seven. We're going to record at seven. So I leave early. I'm a very punctual person. I start walking over to your house around 6.30. Just so happens on my way, I see a man gripping his leg, crying out in pain. He's been struck by a passing car. Now, on the one hand, I have this prima facie duty of keeping my promise. That is, I will only have done my conditional duty to you if I keep my promise and I'm there promptly at 7 o'clock. At the same time, I seem to have this other obligation. There's a stranger in need, crying out in pain, and I'm the only one around. Surely I also have this prima facie conditional duty to help this person, this person crying out in pain. Now, what do we do here? Now, if you're Kant, 
I have this perfect obligation to keep my promises that overrides everything. I have to ignore this suffering man and make sure I'm there promptly at seven o'clock. But that seems to conflict with what is most appropriate, most incumbent upon me in that situation, namely, which is to help the crying man who's injured. So in this situation, I have conflicting duties, aspects of which he says that our duty proper is always the entire nature of the situation. Aspects of it will be prima facie right and prima facie wrong. It is prima facie wrong of me to miss our appointment, but it is prima facie of right of me insofar as I have this overriding prima facie duty to help the injured person. So in that situation, Ross says, and I think I would say, and I hope you would say, that my most incumbent duty under the circumstances is to break my promise, which is prima facie wrong, which I can feel bad about because it is my conditional duty and would be my duty if there wasn't this man screaming out in pain that I have to break my promise and help this injured man. Now, competing accounts, cons account, consequentialist account, utilitarian accounts don't give us a way of deliberating over this. The utilitarian says, well, if it would produce more overall good in the grand scheme of things to keep your promise and ignore this suffering man, then you do that. The Kantian yeah, would say, yeah, yeah, you get it. <laughs> there, there are two things. Yeah, there are two things that occur to me here. And the first is that part, part of what I think you come away with with this picture is that, and it's because of Ross's resistance to these incredibly parsimonious meta-ethical theories or or just ethical theories, yeah. whether, um, you know, that the, in its resistance to the urge, I think, to find a single principle uh, for a ground, because I think it's part of Ross's picture that realities in our ordinary commitments are a bit messier than that. Absolutely. And one of the, one of the aspects of that might be to and, and this is a theme I think it's important for Bernard Williams as well to maybe question how deeply we can push the metaphysics of some of these moral presuppositions. That maybe there's a certain extent to which, look, this is how we refer to them. And we need to kind of prescind from asking the additional kind of ontological question about what are they really objectively. Right. That in some sense, that doesn't get us anywhere. That's never actually going to get us to a metaphysically deeper level or better resting sort of on this on the surface level of what do, how do we make the best sense of right. these ordinary commitments absolutely um but then yeah that was the first thing let's focus on that because i think that's that okay. um because like the i think it, it gets at this question that we got we were discussing with nietzsche last week which was it's in a persistent theme in Nietzsche that a certain set of meta, a certain pattern of metaphysical questioning is going to lead you along a path of error uh, towards uh, trying to find some sort of transcendence that will lead you to escape, allow you to escape from certain features of this reality and what you find to be limiting or lacking or, or the elements of suffering that are in it. Right. Um, and I wonder trying to like connect this to our previous episode in that respect, I wonder whether there is some kind of connection here where Ross is, as Nietzsche would say, superficial out of profundity, 
uh, then he is sort of explaining to us how there really isn't a further question to be raised past this best description that we can give of our moral discourse. Trying to push further with these questions is going to lead us to either trying to reduce these to natural properties with what, which won't work, right. or just generally trying to flesh out an irreducible and unanalyzable property that can't be analyzed further that we just sort of have to accept right. as self-evident. Um, so the but, question, yeah, the, the question you really is really seem to be raising here is why do people like Ross and people within this tradition insist upon the objectivity of morals in terms of being mind independent, of being things that we apprehend immediately as intrinsically valuable? Why is that necessary? Isn't it enough that Ross provides a way of mapping our deliberative judgments that seem to reflect our, our, our best experience? Doesn't that give us all we want? Um, and I think there is virtue to seeing that way, but I think for Ross, it's very important that in his identification of the general principles of duty, that he has hit upon the fact that because things like promise keeping and the duty of justice, self-improvement, don't seem to rest on a natural property. They seem to be uh, right because they are an instance of this thing. Like we keep promises in virtue of the fact that we've made a promise, right? It's not forward-looking. It's not about thinking about the consequences. There's no way to reduce it in this way. That there, they are these plausible candidates for our conditional duties are irreducible, that we just seem and feel and reflect upon the sense that we have an obligation in virtue of the fact that they are this type of act. Well, this this gets me back to then to, all right, and that helps me segue to what my second issue was going of to course. be. Of course. You know, we've talked about how, the, how Ross's theory is able to accommodate disagreement, but one of the premises for the pod and for this project of kind of examining moral foundations was the sense that we exist in a time of particularly deep and intractable moral disagreement. Right. And I wonder what resources Ross has for making sense of that, if any. And part of, and, and it, I wonder, so like part of the reason is that I've wondered that how, you know, a certain picture that you often get in liberal theory of value pluralism, where you have people committed to kind of different conceptions of the good life. And it's the job of the state to neutrally negotiate among these different perspectives with a kind of neutral morality uh, that is instantiated in law. Um, you know, I've thought for a while that that poorly describes the nature of disagreement that we find in Absolutely. contemporary politics. So I wonder if one way of making sense of this from Ross's perspective would be to look at a disagreement of the sort of, for example, over, over masking during COVID. Right. So you take a case of a group of people who, as I see it, are willing to mask based on the relevant insights of the empirical science you know, in order to protect themselves, in order to protect their family, friends, their fellow citizens in general. And then you have a group that, regardless of whether they're skeptical of the science, seems to have an intuition that is more like, I don't, you know, don't tread on me. Uh, I don't want to wear the mask because of, I right. don't want my freedom to be restricted. I resent the idea of this external authority telling me what medical decisions I should make, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of wonder whether Ross might actually be 
better suited to explaining this sort of moral disagreement where the dif difference isn't between you hold one value that you seem to be self think is self-evident and I hold another that you that I think is self-evident, but you could see it this way. But another way to see it is one party is accepting this basic element of a need for to have moral concern and recognize prima facie duties towards one's fellow human beings. And another party is, has gotten to a point perhaps of saying, you know what, I don't care. I don't recognize the need for basic moral concern for my fellow human being. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think Ross does provide a valuable resource here in terms of how we can inject his insights into our moral dis discourses and how we might argue uh, in favor of the pro-social benefits of masking against the recalcitrant libertarian anti-masker in that Ross acknowledges that our obligations are not merely impartial, but we have personal or special obligations. And perhaps the failure of the uh, the discourse against anti-maskers, the, the failure to persuade anti-maskers is because we're proceeding on this notion that the moral thing to do is the impartial thing to do. And for Ross, that that's not always the case. It's not always about the social utility, that a lot of our everyday obligations for people are very personal. We stand in different forms of relations to people that uh, include things like uh, a personal obligation. Like I have, if, if I have a ability to save my drowning mother, as opposed to a complete stranger, I seem to have a stronger, not only inclination, but I seem to have a, a personal obligation to save my entire, mother. This entire category is special obligations. Yes. Special, up, yes. Right? He says that there's a high, highly uh, personal character of duty that many of our duties are not impartial uh, they are other regarding, but they reflect the fact that we stand in various relations to people. You're my friend. My mother is my mother. My, I have my coworkers. I am a citizen of the United States. I have all these ways in which I am obligated implicitly and explicit to others. And they both have levels of like incumbency and stringency upon me. So perhaps Ross gives us a, a resource for augmenting the way we try to negotiate these very public conversations about the value of masking. Perhaps the anti-maskers are intuitively rebelling against the idea that morality, strictly speaking, end of sentence, is about impartiality, about doing what's good for the collective. Because it's clear that we have personal obligations. We don't just have collective obligations. We have duties to others in virtue of the particular relationship we have with one another. No, that's a great way of breaking it down. That's very useful. Um, and actually, yes, that's it, it helpfully demonstrating the usefulness of Ross's account here. So I want to let you, if there's anything else about Ross that you wanted to highlight, I wanted to give you the opportunity before we wrap up to get that out. But I also want to give you the opportunity because you have been on this soapbox for some time to give your case for why Nietzsche is a moral realist. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, in order to do this, I'll have to say that I cannot successfully or in good faith make the argument that Nietzsche is a Rossian moral realist. Yeah, cer certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche very clearly and explicitly does not accept the existence of non-natural properties. He doesn't believe morality is objective in the robust sense of being mind or stance independent. If Nietzsche is to be argued for as a moral realist, we're going to have to see him 
as an objectivist in the relational intersubjective sense, which is, I should note, an option available for the more realists. It's not the Rossian way, but it is a way. That the way we should cash out the objectivity of, of morals is not this queer idea of mind independence with non-natural properties, but a process of reciprocal communal consensus. You mentioned uh, Rawls's reflective equilibrium, that our moral values come to us as a dialectical process of subject-object relations, of a relation between our shared values and the descriptive facts in the world. In this sense, we can see Nietzschean, a Nietzschean realism possible. Because for Nietzsche, we inject value into the world. In fact, this is the primary impetus for all human creativity and for future development of civilization. That without this continual recreation, without this creative act of injecting value in the world, uh, we are doomed to fall victim to nihilism, to the belief in nothing, to a world without transcendent warrant, since God has made impossible. So that would be my steel manning for Nietzsche as a moral realist. He's a moral realist in the sense that he thinks that value is continually generated in the world that is real insofar as it is constantly intersubjectively negotiated as part of the creative process. Yeah, this is a picture I find I find amenable. I, I could be persuaded of this. And we will have occasion to talk about this more in our next episode. So we're going to be transitioning in our next episode to a focus on neo-Aristotelian moral theories, particularly in Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor. We're going to be looking at Alistair McIntyre's classic After Virtue and some selections from Charles Taylor's A Secular Aid. But as we'll see with McIntyre, McIntyre is going to issue a devastating critique of the intuitionists of this period of analytic philosophy. And he's going to present us with a stark alternative when it comes to justifying or grounding morality. He's going to tell us that we have to choose between either Nietzsche or Aristotle. Either we have to go back to a classical picture of teleology in some way, or we have to accept Nietzsche's nihilistic conclusion that all values are going to devalue themselves. I think so this will be a radical critique that we're going to kind of hopefully tie together an a, a philosopher who's, who's steeped in the analytic tradition who will help us relate Nietzsche also to some of the discussions we had today. And hopefully our uh, listeners will uh, appreciate uh, a bit of whiplash. Uh, and I think this transition between this discussion of moral realism into McIntyre will make sense because his book largely begins by a critique of the milieu of uh these analytic metaethicists, Ross and Moore, the kind of upper crust, white British, Oxford, Cambridge, milieu they come out of, and how their intuitionism can only be understood within this historical context. So it will be an argument that while they claim to be making objective claims about morality, they're doing so from there, it's only made possible from a position of upper crust superiority. McIntyre is a, a good Marxist doing his version of ideology critique here. Yes. Um, yeah. But that is for next time. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode. Thank you, Charles, for an eloquent discussion of Ross. I hope everybody enjoyed, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much.